This is the Green Blues Show. Latest news, a bit of blues. Today, no way to treat a child holding Israel accountable for its abuse of Palestinian children. The second half of our last edition's chat with ecological economist William Rees and one of North America's most energy-efficient buildings right here in Winnipeg. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Imagine for a moment there's an attack on a major city in the U.S. or Europe. The attackers come from a Muslim country or region, or their names sound like they do. How do you suppose government officials and the media will react? They'll call it a terrorist attack, write articles and make speeches about radical Islam, right? Now, imagine that same attack, but the attacker is a white American or European with a Western-sounding name. How will officials and the media react to that? Most likely, they'll publicly wonder what the motive was, talk to his family and friends, try to find out if he was recently fired or had some other grievance against his employer or community, There will be talk about mental health and slipping through the cracks and the importance of early intervention. These are only hypotheticals, though. How well do they match real life? In July 2011, a white Norwegian murdered 77 people to make his fellow Norwegians aware, as he explained, of the existential threat posed by Muslims and multiculturalism. Commentators were quick to explain the inexplicable but typically avoided the terms terrorism or terrorist attack. When Stephen Paddock, a white American, slaughtered hundreds of country music fans at an outdoor event in October 2017, commentators struggled to come up with a motive. The same thing when Devin Patrick Kelly shot up the entire congregation of a small rural church in Texas. Contrast this with the coverage of the shooting attack on a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, that killed 50 people in June 2016, and the two attacks last year in New York City, both classified as terrorist attacks after being traced to ISIS. It does seem as if political motives only spell terrorism if their connections to ISIS or Al-Qaeda, or if the perpetrator is an immigrant. Next time there's a mass deadly attack, as there shall be, sad to say, pay close attention to how the official label assigned to it correlates to motives and ethnicity. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. If you got over 15 grams, better split it 99 different ways. If you got over 15 grams, you better split it 99 different ways. Or the ragged till he's got no certain place to dig your grave. When they demand your money, you got to give it up with a smile. got to give it up with a smile And if you refuse They'll read about you in a short little while When do 
with you It don't do no good to run When the gang is out to get you It don't do no good to run It's true you can dodge the law But you can't dodge them slugs out the machine gun favorite guitar players, the great Lonnie Johnson, Racketeers Blues, recorded in 1932. Johnson was among the first blues artists to achieve commercial success alongside Blind Blake and Blind Lemon Jefferson. Lonnie Johnson had this thing for ascending codas, rising lines at the end of his songs, virtuosic and elegant. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Following up on our last edition's sequence of voices from the Palestinian village of Nabi Saleh, here's a conversation with Brad Parker, advocacy officer with Defense for Children International Palestine. Ill-treatment of children in the Israeli military detention system is widespread, systematic, and institutionalized, Parker tells me. How many children and youth are currently being held in detention by Israel, by Israel's military occupation? So it's always a bit difficult to to ascertain the exact number of, of children in detention uh, on any given day. Um, the numbers that we work off of are provided by the Israel Prison Service. Um, and, and so at the end of November, uh, the last day of November, Israel Prison Service figures show that 313 uh, Palestinian children were in Israeli military detention on that day. Defense for Children International Palestine, uh, our attorneys that represent kids in the military courts, uh, our lawyers that do prison visits, um, were, were sort of able to to come up with an annual estimate that around 500 to 700 uh, Palestinian children are arrested and, and prosecuted in the Israeli military courts each year. And one actually sees, I have seen um, videos on Facebook. Of course, one must always observe such things 
with a critical eye. But I, I've seen videos of Israeli forces uh, attempting to detain children as apparently as young as six, six or seven years old. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. Under Israeli military law, the age of uh, criminal responsibility is 12 years old. So the, uh, anybody over 12 years can be charged, prosecuted in the military courts. Uh, so when it comes to, to children younger than 12, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't and aren't detained. Uh, it just it sort of means that they can't be prosecuted in the military courts. So the way this works in practice is that, um, so for example, children living in uh, the southern West Bank city of Hebron, uh, where there is a, 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 a Israeli soldier presence, Israeli settler presence, um, a lot of interaction between soldiers, settlers, and Palestinian children, uh, a lot of checkpoints. You know, children have to go through checkpoints to get to school, uh, to visit family members. So in that context, uh, you would have, uh, you know, a 10-year-old, say, uh, or even an 8-year-old um, being detained at a checkpoint, um, pulled in, pulled aside into a container, questioned, uh, maybe for, for just a few minutes, maybe for uh, several hours, uh, possibly longer, held overnight, released, you know, in the early morning hours of the next day. Um, that that 10-year-old wouldn't be charged in the military court, but... Uh, it, 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 they have been detained, questioned, sort of put through a, a, a traumatic experience nonetheless. I'd like to ask you how uh, children, uh, youth, are treated uh, uh, by Israeli occupation forces when they're in detention. What practices have you documented to, uh, that, that illustrate or corroborate the view that children are, well, how children are treated under military, under military law? How are they treated? So we say that the, the ill treatment that children face in the military detention system is widespread, systematic, and institutionalized. The, uh, whether it's physical violence, you know, denying access to parents during interrogation, uh, hand ties, blindfolds, the use of a de detention as the default process, uh, really the kind of range of rights violations uh, go against everything in international law uh, related to juvenile justice norms um, and, uh, you know, some of the basic uh, foundational prohibitions like the absolute prohibition against torture. Uh, so children, uh, you're alleging that children are, are tortured under uh, when, when in detention? Yeah, we have, you know, numerous cases of, of torture, um, you know, for example, uh, based on our, you know, cases from 2012 through um, the end of 2016, I think it's around 600 cases that we've, we've documented uh, affidavits from children uh, and then also uh, affidavits and, and information from uh, the legal representation representation that we provide uh, three out of four kids experience some form of physical violence following arrest um, typically you know when we're talking about threats and in, in sort of harassment or intimidation uh, it, it tends to come during an interrogation uh, you know it's it's tell me tell me confess that you threw stones or tell me the names of your friends that threw stones um, or you know we're gonna put you away forever or we're gonna you know make life difficult for you and, and sort of physical violence threats things like that so that's sort of the typical um, type of conduct that that we see from interrogators we're talking about you know 14 15 16 year old 
children in that have been arrested uh, often from their home in the middle of the night, bound, blindfolded, put into a military jeep, uh, transferred to uh, a military base nearby their their community, maybe a settlement uh, or a military base is sort of on the grounds. Uh, and and if they say they've been arrested at 2 a.m., they'll probably be there, uh, whether you know sitting in the jeep, bound and blindfolded, surrounded by soldiers, or taken out and put on the ground, uh, exposed to the elements, bound, blindfolded, uh, just waiting for whatever it is that comes next. Typically, w- w- with or without access to lawyers or parents. Yeah, I mean, almost a hundred percent without. Uh, access to lawyers or parents. So uh, under Israeli military law, there is no right to an attorney during interrogation. Uh, So, uh, you know, 100% of kids don't have access to an attorney during interrogation. Uh, Sometimes we have uh, a handful of cases where children are allowed to speak on the phone with an attorney prior to interrogation. Uh, But what we see is that those consultations are rarely uh, meaningful or have any impact on, uh, you know, enhancing the situation or protections for the child during the interrogation. Um, I think our most recent figures show that 97% of kids did not have uh, parents present during interrogation. Uh, And this sort of goes along with the, uh, the whole... Uh, process of interrogation really denies any third-party presence, whether it's uh, audio-visual recording, parents, lawyers. Uh, that child is essentially alone in that interrogation room. Um, and when you look at the sort of the military law framework uh, and, and the way that arrests are carried out, I mean, it, it becomes clear sort of what the motivation is in that interrogation. Uh, the goal is is to produce some type of incriminating statement, a confession, uh, some type of evidence that could be used and passed on to a military prosecutor to justify charges against the child uh, in the court. Uh, Because under military law, uh, soldiers uh, have the authority to arrest on suspicion. This isn't so foreign to, to, uh, you know, a Canadian or an American criminal law framework. Uh, You know, police, if they have, uh, they suspect that somebody's actively committing a criminal offense, uh, they have the authority to to arrest. Uh, In the West Bank, this, this sort of plays out in a much sort of broader way, uh, where you have kind of the soldier's word stands for everything, um, and there is no independent oversight over arrests. Uh, we have cases where you know it's a, a child that's accused of throwing stones, uh, maybe three months earlier. Uh, you know, a jeep, soldiers pass by, they they see uh, the child and and stop, arrest him tie his hands, throw him in the back of the jeep. Uh, there is no sort of independent oversight over that arrest. So essentially that child shows up in that interrogation room uh, with a, a, the arresting soldier's affidavit saying, I saw uh, so-and-so throw a stone you know, two months ago, three months ago, two weeks ago. Um, that soldier doesn't necessarily have to be 100% sure. Uh, they might not even you know, be sure at all. Uh, but that sort of affidavit is what uh, starts the process, and that will be one of the pieces of evidence in, against that child in the file. So, Brad, Brad Parker, Brad, I, I'd like to ask you. So, at this moment, uh, uh, mid-January 2018, uh, approximately how many children and youth are being held in, in ha- have been convicted and are in detention? 
So the both pre-trial or you know pre-charge, pre-trial, and serving sentences uh, at the end of November, the figure we had from the Israel Prison Service was 313. Uh, we we know that figure is is higher um, following the the recent announcement by the Trump administration regarding Jerusalem. Um, we saw sort of figures spike uh, in December, um, so we're waiting to see what the the Israel Prison Service figures are when they're released. But we expect that that, that they did spike um, quite dramatically in December and, and into January. Now, um, that's based on uh, so we have. A source at Offer Military Prison, uh, where Offer Military Prison also has a military court. Uh, it's one of the two main prisons where Palestinian children are detained, uh, and they reported that uh, I think the the number of new um, children received at the prison uh, went up 120% in the first uh, 20 days of December uh, versus the full month of, of November. So um, I, I expect that that will be reflected in the, the, the new figures released by the Israel Prison Service when they are uh, made public. So the question I want to ask is, uh, how many uh, Palestinian children are being held in detention inside Israel proper? Because for the listeners it would be a grave breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention for Israel to transfer Palestinians uh, to be detained into Israel proper and hold them in inside Israeli jails. I gather most of the 6,500 or so Palestinian prisoners being held by Israel in detention are being held inside Israeli jails, that this is a a flagrant violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention, but um, you may want to comment on that re- really briefly. But how typical is it for child prisoners to be held inside Israel? It's it's common. So, offer military prison is in the West Bank, uh, in in anywhere from fifty percent to probably uh, sixty-five, maybe upwards of seventy percent of kids uh, are detained at offer. Uh, but it, you know. The other prison uh, where children are detained is uh, Megiddo Prison, and that's in sort of just outside of the, the in Israel, um, in outside of the northern West Bank, uh, and and that could be you know it ranges between thirty percent of kids uh, up to to sixty percent of kids we've seen sort of through uh, the past few years that would be detained there. So those are the two main prisons where where children are held. Inside Israel and Megiddo prison inside Israel. Yes, exactly. So Offer is in the West Bank and then Megiddo is in uh, inside Israel. And that, you know, as you said, is a unlawful transfer under international humanitarian law. Um, in the same way that you know, civilians are, or a state is prohibited from transferring civilians into an occupied territory, uh, they're also prohibited from transferring a occupied population out of an occupied territory. So that's exactly what's happening when Israel uh, detains and, and holds children uh, in Megiddo prison. Brad Parker, can you tell me about this legislation that is uh, under consideration in the United States and the No Way to Treat a Child? Is the title of the legislation No Way to Treat a Child? No, the the title of the legislation is Promoting Human Rights by Ending Israeli Military Detention of Palestinian Children Act. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue, uh, but, but the, the thinking was that 
to have a title that sort of gets right to the heart of the issue that that it focuses on was was key for uh, some of the messaging. And where where is this right now in the U.S. Congress? Where does it sit, and what does it call for? Sure. So it was introduced on November fourteenth. Uh, in in so the short the bill number is HR four three nine one. It was introduced on November fourteenth. There were it was sponsored by a representative from Minnesota, Representative Betty McCollum, uh, and had nine additional co-sponsors when it was introduced. It was referred to the House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs, uh, and I, I don't expect, you know, I don't think we were, were realistic that, you know, this is the first ever uh, bill presented in Congress that focuses specifically on, on Palestinian human rights. So the bill focuses on ensuring that no U.S. citizens to the government of Israel uh, is is implicated in or supports specific violations of international law like torture, cruel, uh, in, inhumane, degrading treatment, uh, physical violence, um, solitary confinement, administrative detention, uh, forced confessions. Uh, so that's sort of the the motivation behind it. Brad Parker from Defense Children International Palestine. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on the Green Blue Show. Right, thanks. thanks for having me. Brad Parker is International Advocacy Officer and Attorney with Defense for Children International, Palestine. Read more about DCPI's advocacy work and the plight of children under Israeli military detention at GreenPlanetMonitor.net. You are listening to the Green Blue Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
change is on everyone's lips. The big sleeper of a catastrophe that has been the subject of discussion and media attention, but hasn't seemed to have stimulated national leaders to take much action, is the great planetary extinction event. Experts say we're in the midst of the latest harbinger of the crisis, plummeting insect and bird populations globally. I spoke about this with William Rees, Professor Emeritus at the University of British Columbia. The first half of our chat was in the last edition of the Green Blue Show. Here's the second half of Reason to I, speaking about the idea of ceaseless economic growth within a closed planetary system. Many people say that uh, never before has, have human societies been healthier, wealthier, with longer life expectancy that global capitalism, globalization has lifted millions, if not billions, out of poverty, and that life today in 2017, 2018, is, is, is far better, far healthier for, uh, and, and productive for, for humans on the planet. It used to be far worse for human beings and human society than it is now. Yeah, yeah let's be real about this. There's no question that a significant number of human beings, say a quarter to a third of the population, are richer by far than the you know, kings of Europe were uh, half a millennium ago. Uh, that This is now becoming history. There are more, look, it's absolutely true. So let's be clear here. This enormous growth of the economy beginning in the 19th century has produced unprecedented material wealth on planet Earth, but not for everyone. Uh, we talk about the billions that have been raised from poverty. Absolutely true. But there are more impoverished people on Earth today, uh, if we think of the uh, total population of, say, a seven and a half, almost eight, I guess it's 7.6 or 7.7 billion today, uh, half of those people live below what it, most of us in Europe and North America would call the poverty line. There are more people in poverty today living on less than $3 a day than there were people living on Earth in the early 1960s, or certainly the 1950s. So it's true that large numbers have been you know, lifted out of poverty, but there's more po people in poverty than lived just a half century ago. So we're not clear of this problem by any means. And as I say, attempting to raise that half billion, plus another two billion that haven't even been born yet, to the kinds of material standards we enjoy, which, by the way, have destroyed so much of the planet, is an impossibility theorem. The other thing you've raised, I think, is also true. We've increased longevity, the health of the population, and so on. But that's also beginning to be reversed. Uh, Russia has a much lower um, 
life expectancy now than it did 20 years ago. For the last couple of years, life expectancy in the United States has been in decline uh, precisely because of the increase in income disparity and the increasing numbers of people in poverty living on unsatisfactory diets and uh, resorting to drugs and all sorts of other ways of getting out of their, their misery. So this is by no means an unblemished record of growth leading to unparalleled happiness. In fact, if we look at the psychological literature, I think we could make the case that in around 1960, the late 50s and 1960s, North Americans reached a peak of happiness. And the annual surveys that have been done since then, we're talking now about over a half a century, show a steady decline in people's perceived well-being in their state of, of, of actual happiness even as their incomes have increased. And we also have to keep in mind that when economists talk about the GDP growing at 2 and 3% per year, it doesn't mean that your salary or mine or those of the poorest people are increasing at that rate. It means that the national income has increased by that amount. But in the last 30 or 40 years, 80 to 90% of the increase in national income has gone to the top 10 or even 1% of the, of, of the people in the country. So the increase in income, the wealth increase that people proudly point to is not being by any means equitably shared. So we see a situation today where say 40 to 50 percent of Americans, a somewhat smaller percentage of Canadians are no better off and many are, are much worse off than they were 40 or 50 years ago as we've seen this enormous shift in the structural base of the economy, the tax system and so on so that we're now seeing the economy functioning as a pump, extracting wealth from the environment, from ecosystems and the poor, and funneling it into the pockets of the very rich. Just this morning on the radio, I heard the latest statistics Canada figure that the incomes of the top 100 or so executives in Canadian corporations are 200 times the incomes of the average Canadian. And if you go down to the poorer uh, Canadians, uh, you know, the, uh, half of us live below average, then we're seeing today where the incomes of our chief executives are four, five, six hundred times higher than the incomes of shop floor workers. Well, th this is well known. This income disparity, this gross inequality is well known to induce all sorts of indicators of population ill health, increased drug and alcohol addiction rates, increased rates of divorce, and so on. And this is the sort of thing, this increasing income disparity that is leading to the decline in life expectancy and in general population health in, in the United States and increasingly in the UK, Canada, and so on. So we are really on a treadmill to both social and ecological lapse ecological collapse uh, should these trends continue. And quite clearly with the election of, of uh, people like uh, Trump and even Trudeau, uh, we're not seeing any significant change in countries that are beginning to show these symptoms that would indicate we're willing to make the changes necessary to reverse these trends. On that, on that point, Bill Reese, I'd like to ask you a couple of related uh, big questions. What would a courageous visionary and courageous leader do today in 2018 to turn things around? And do, I mean, does the human species 
have the capacity, the biological capacity, the the neurocognitive capacity. I know you write about these things to to actually do it because you look at a guy like young Justin Trudeau, he's bold, he's visionary, supposedly he he's charismatic, he uh, you know, he, if a guy like him can't say, look, we've got to decarbonize the economy and we've got to start now, um, um, if he can't do it, who can? So uh, my question then is, you know, what, what would what would true leaders do? And uh, can 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 we hope to see leadership of this sort, given the, you know, the nature of the human species? Well, what a true leader would do uh, is to say, look, isn't it time we started paying attention to the evidence? I mean, if we speak about Trudeau, his government, government was elected on the promise that it would be governance based on uh, acting on the available evidence. But the available evidence is quite clear that we're headed toward climate catastrophe. The available evidence suggests that even if all of the commitments of nations under the Paris Accord of 2015 were uh, actually followed, which is highly unlikely. Certainly Canada is not achieving its targets here. Uh, even if that were the case, we'd still face three, three and a half degrees mean global warming, which is catastrophic. It would turn a significant part of the productive planet into a desert, raise sea levels, displace tens if not hundreds of millions of people. We'd have a mass migration problem a complete catastrophe by the end of this century. We will see the depletion of our ecosystems, the extinction of thousands of species. We will see the continued pollution of the oceans, and so on. I, I needn't go through the list. It's a horrific list. So what a courageous leader would do is say, look at these data and say, look, we've made significant conceptual errors. We have to face the reality that this is putting us, that growth is putting us on a collision course with biophysical reality. We now need to shift our emphasis away from efficiency and growth, which are the primary goals of modern economic thinking, uh, toward more ecologically oriented goals, such as equity. So there's by far enough wealth to go around. It's just not going around. It's being hogged, as it were, by the rich 10% or 1% even. We have to shift toward equity, which means policies of redistribution, while we shrink the economy back to a level of throughput that is uh, manageable or sustainable and under which we can live uh, sustainably and more equitably within the biophysical capacity of nature. If human beings do not learn to live within the regenerative capacity of the ecosystems that support us, then we're done for. And right now we're not living within the regenerative capacities of those ecosystems. So a true leader, a charismatic true leader, would have to be the catalyst to bring other leaders together to confront this enormous problem of how do we turn around a 200 years of thinking based on growth uh, toward recognizing, all right, growth is good, but just as it is uh, for each of us as individuals, it's the immature phase of any system. We've now entered a mature phase in which growth must cease. And instead of foking, focusing si simply on getting bigger, which is what growth is all about, we have to focus on getting better. Getting better means redistributing the benefits 
benefits of that growth, improving the chances of people to realize their full potential, but within the constraints imposed by the natural systems that continue to support us. This is all possible. There are many different strategies that have been worked out by profound thinkers as to how this might happen. The chances of it happening are almost nil. And one of the reasons is that it's almost impossible to conceive of a leader uh, rising in the current system who would hold those views. If you look at the, the US, uh, to a lesser extent, the Canadian and European governance systems, uh, to become elected now, you need to be a millionaire or supported by millionaires. Or billionaires. Of course, sure. The Koch brothers in the United States has put up several hundred million dollars financing the election of their preferred candidates in the most recent election, including Trump for that matter. Uh, these people, once they've been elected by that corporate generosity, are simply dedicated to maintaining their status within the system, their political power. And to do that, they have to do the bidding of their corporate uh, leash holders and literally they're on a leash to the corporate sector or at least to the billionaire sector and so anyone who were to pronounce uh, okay we've made a big error climate change is real we've got to act dramatically to get out of fossil fuels it would be gone in an instant in in our current political system that's why i say if we really want significant change uh, people's mindsets are generally you know significant social change occurs either because of catastrophic events which just wake everybody up the, the, the way an automobile will wake you up a crash will wake you up if you fall asleep at the wheel and we're definitely asleep at the wheel or there's a revolution which is another form of massive change which forces people to begin thinking but right now we're, we're trapped in in the combination of the biological predisposition to expand uh, upon which we've socially constructed an economic which model which demands expansion and uh, the capitalist system which is driving the world is, is run by wealth uh, the political system has been captured by that wealth and i cannot imagine any politician rising to the top with the kind of vision necessary to change things because the change would be absolutely the antithesis of the values promoted by the people who elect our current politicians. Democracy is currently utterly fraudulent because we need for a democracy to work a well-informed, politically engaged and interested population who vote in their own interests. What we have is an ill-informed population who are perpetually kept in ignorance by think tanks that promote uh, false news, to put it in those terms, but false science as well, uh, keep us in ignorance, hold out false promise while lining their own nest. I mean, in, in the U.S., Trump uh, you know, promised to rid Washington of the alligators, rid the swamp of the alligators. Well, he's just filled it up, as many people have now said, with worse alligators and made the situation for many of the relatively poor people in the United States worse than it might otherwise be. Well, last question, Bill Rees. Where, where is the cutting edge of change happening? I think the cutting edge of change is happening in the hundreds of NGOs around the world who know the truth, who are working at the community level to build social capital, uh, to uh, resurrect local economies, 
uh, to begin to do the kinds of, they're almost going into survival mode because you know our energy futures is really in doubt the entire world society world culture that we've developed is based on abundant cheap energy in the form of fossil fuel well that's going away we're not going to be able to sustain current global structures without a substitute and despite everything you hear about the wonders of solar and wind and so on and so forth they're barely making a dent in actual energy consumption around the world you hear about 25 percent per year growth rates but when you start from zero that's not such a big deal if you look at germany which has invested billions of euros in solar and wind at the present time, just take solar to make this simple, solar provides less than 2%, something like 1.3% of Germany's total energy budget after billions of dollars in investment. There's still 80% dependent on fossil fuel. Wood, burning wood, provides vastly more energy than does solar still in something like Germany, in a country like Germany, which is at the leading edge of this. So we're caught between a very difficult situation. To maintain the current juggernaut requires huge quantities of abundant cheap energy. It's simply not available unless we're talking about fossil fuel. And fossil fuel, the readily accessible stuff, is running out. Prices will begin to rise. And then what do you do? You cannot sustain a city of billions of, of millions of people in the absence of energy. Thousands of trucks daily bring millions of tons of material from all over the world into that city. Trucks need fossil energy. Do not think you will see in the coming decade useful electrical vehicles that can go the distances needed. Uh, the battery, if you were to use a battery sufficient to uh, you know, create a a large truck that could go 600 miles, which a typical truck will do today, or, or a thousand kilometers, it, there'd be no room left for cargo. The battery would take up the entire vehicle. So we've got a huge energy crunch coming, and it means that if we were really smart, if that intelligent, charismatic, uh, forward-thinking uh, politician were to come into place, we'd be developing our society around uh, bioregions that were as self-sufficient as possible, uh, that were able to live more or less off their own countrysides. Uh, these would be large urban-centered bioregions. It's impossible for this to happen in many places, but that's what we should be thinking toward. These wouldn't be isolated. We're not abolishing trade. We're just recognizing that regions uh, will have to become more and more self-reliant in the kind of future that we are creating, and yet nobody's willing even to think these things through. We need to become more self-reliant, we need redundant energy systems, we need to relocalize manufacturing. We've got to the point now where we, we can't even tie our own shoes in this country because we've offloaded all of the basic skills that made us wealthy in the first place. So I think we're really headed for some very rough times and those NGOs that are on the cutting edge are those that are moving us back towards, not back, but forward uh, toward thinking of what are the basic skills that we need to relocalize uh, to become relatively self-sufficient so that as the global system begins to disintegrate under its own weight and excesses, uh, we will be able to survive because we've built sufficient social capital, the skills, the knowledge, and so on needed to sustain a community uh, on that local scale. One can barely imagine what life will be like on Earth or in Canada when the, the kids uh, 
the kids, the small children, you know, f- who are born today or who are going to university or adults, um, it's it boggles the mind what the world will be like in 50 or 60 years, given given your analysis and prognosis. Well, you know, I'm willing to be wrong. I wish I were wrong. Let's face it. What I'm saying here is not necessary. It's just the direction we're headed. Let's be clear about something, David. Right now, I think global society is in a state of deep cultural denial. We've mesmerized ourselves into belief in the miracles of technology and economic growth. In fact, I think we are all slaves to a double-barreled myth of perpetual economic growth uh, propelled by ever-improving technological achievements. That's fine. And if the myth were to sustain itself, so be it. I just don't happen to think, and increasing numbers of scientists do not happen to think that this myth can hold. And there's plenty of evidence that it's beginning to break down. Uh, Just last month, there was a second warning of scientists saying that we are headed for catastrophe. Uh, Tens, thousands of us signed this particular document. We're headed for catastrophe on the current path. Now, we don't have to stay on this path, but unless sufficient numbers of people are aware that these are the directions that we are headed, unless sufficient people, numbers of people are aware that we still have the time and the resources to turn things around to make us a soft landing out of this, then we're going to have a crash. It will be a hard landing, hard on many, many people. So we're really at, I think, I think a very critical juncture over the next uh, couple of decades in human history where we begin to accept the unfolding reality and its consequences and to plan for a better future. Let let me make just one final point. Human beings have unique qualities unshared by any other species. One of them is the ability to reason from the evidence, to develop policies and plans based on what we know to be true, based on the trends that we know to exist. I've already referred to the second major talent, that is the ability to plan ahead. No other species has the capacity to plan ahead in ways that change the outcome of its own future. Now, we've been planning for the last 40 or 50 or 60 years in particular to continue growth indefinitely. And it's producing exactly the future that one would anticipate if you accept the reality of a finite ecosphere, a finite planet. Now, we can plan to create a new society which lives more equitably within the biophysical means of nature. That is a possible exercise. The charismatic politician we were talking about earlier would gather around him the scientists, the technicians, the sociologists necessary to put such a plan together and to develop the policies needed to implement it. Now, those are the choices before us. But we are clearly not at the point where we are anything remotely like willing to accept that this reality I'm talking about is the reality that's unfolding. Even though the data are clear, we are insistent on ignoring those data and in living in optimism that somehow technology, if we have sufficient growth to pay for it, will bail us out. So those are the two competing visions. And the fate of human society and of millions of other species, or at least hundreds of thousands of other species, depends on which of these scenarios is true 
and which path humans decide to take. It is our choice. Uh, we simply don't be, seem prepared at this point to make the choice that I think would pull it off. Bill Reese, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me on the Green Blues Show. I'm very glad to have been part of this discussion. Thank you so much. William Rees is Professor Emeritus of the University of British Columbia's School of Community and Regional Planning. He's the originator and co-developer of ecological footprint analysis. Read more about William Rees and ecological economics at greenplanetmonitor.net. This is the Green Blue Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Days of his career in the early 1960s, Big Bill Brunzi playing and singing an old standard. Brunzi was among the most virtuosic blues guitarists when he began his recording career in the late 20s. His jazzy blues style was highly influential and his guitar skill highly admired. Still is. Give a little, take a little. Let your poor heart bleed, baby, little but baby, that's the glory of love. Cry little, sigh little, let your cloud roll by, baby, little but baby, that's the glory of love. Thinking about tackling climate change, reducing our emission of greenhouse gases, being smarter in our energy use, think about buildings, big and small, in cities and towns across your country. According to architecture2030.org, buildings consume almost half of the energy produced in the United States and almost 75% of its electricity. Here and there... Around the world, architects, engineers, and building owners are putting their noses to the emission reduction grindstone. In Winnipeg, Canada, the province's energy utility is headquartered in one of the continent's most energy-efficient towers. Here's a story about that. This is more of a hybrid between typical construction and climatically responsive design. Manitoba Hydro headquarters in downtown Winnipeg. The shiny new 22-story tower is not a typical fuel guzzler. Natural lighting, passive solar and geothermal heating and cooling, and south-facing exposure make it North America's most energy-efficient building. Architect Tom Akerstream takes me on a tour. 
instead of the building being a uh, building that doesn't inter interact with the climate, to use the climate in the building so the building literally becomes a living and breathing entity. Manitoba Hydro delivers electricity to a half million customers and natural gas to another quarter million. When the design of its new office tower began in the early 2000s, it decided to make a statement. The building certainly does that. Outside, on a balcony overlooking downtown Winnipeg, a prairie garden grows. In the summer, plant transpiration cools the office space beneath. The garden also buffers storm water flow and provides duck habitat. Above us, the building's double glass wall is designed to capture the sun's heat, resist temperature extremes, and ventilate the building at no fuel cost. This is the only double wall in the world that we are aware of that has a double pane of glass on the outside and a single pane on the inside. In the winter mode, we close it all up, like putting a jacket on. In the summer, we open the outside windows, and that little wall on the side catches the air, so it'll go through that double wall to cool the double wall. So free of charge again, we're cooling the building with just natural wind flow. Energy efficiency makes perfect sense for Manitoba Hydro. The northern rivers it generates electricity from will likely recede as Earth's climate warms. By reducing CO2 emissions from its Winnipeg headquarters, Hydro is helping to keep those rivers flowing. Manitoba Hydro is a water resource-based electrical generator. I mean, we generate our electricity, 98% of it, through, through water power. And so how is climate change going to affect that water in the future and that source of water? It's absolutely critical to us that we maintain that water supply. We probably won't see a lot of change in annual flow, but we'll lose that water at a critical time. No one knows more about climate impacts on river flow than Professor David Schindler. August is the critical time for irrigators. It's also the critical time for fish, and I worry that we'll lose those. Schindler helped found Canada's renowned Experimental Lakes area in Ontario, where the impacts of pollutants on freshwater systems were first revealed. Schindler looks back on those studies as an early climate warning bell. If, if I would have predicted from that paper what we were going to see this summer, I would have been right on. Fire in the basins, more chemical inputs from the fire, drought, declining stream flows. More recent research reveals how Canadian rivers are slowing as mountain glaciers melt, especially in midsummer. The ice fields are, of course, shrinking. That same paper that was on there uh, predicts that over 90% of the glaciers in both interior BC and the Rockies will be gone by 2100, so we'll effectively be without those flows. When we're talking about the scale of, of warming that we're on path for with the continued combustion of coal, etc., it really is a game changer. Andrew Weaver is a climate modeler at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Weaver also sits in the provincial legislature as a green, where he speaks his mind. Where we're headed is to warming on the order of three, four degrees. When you start to talk about four-degree warming, you're talking about staggering levels of ecosystems committed to extinction. How, do you, how does a city like New York survive? You start to have uh, storm surges on higher sea level that have events like Sandy happening every year. There's the reality. So we know the end point. The end point is essentially game over. So, so why don't we put in the 
place the policy measures deal with it so we don't get there. We're going up into the tower now. Effective climate policy is crucial. What interests Tom Akerstream the most are energy efficient buildings. Buildings consume nearly half of the energy generated in North America and account for 40% of its CO2 emissions. Uh, 17. Although Manitoba Hydro specializes in generating relatively clean hydroelectricity, its headquarters are powered by the earth and sun, generating no emissions at all. So now we're standing in what we call the lung of the building, and we like to say it's the nicest mechanical room in Canada. The building consists of two different systems. The heating and the cooling is done by a radiant system that comes out of the geothermal system under the building. So in the summer, we're taking the heat from the air and cooling the building by taking the heat out of the air and pushing it back into the ground. And then in the winter, we take that storage of heat to take the heat the other way up into the building to cool the building. On top of Manitoba Hydro's glass office tower, a glass-lined chimney, the air inside rises as it heats in the sun, sucking fresh air through the building at no energy cost. In the winter, solar heated air is shunted back into the building. Minus 35 degrees C in the middle of winter in Winnipeg. This building is so well designed that during the day when the sun is shining, we are literally cooling the building during the day with natural sources as opposed to heating it by using the ground energy and by using the sun's energy combined to provide the heat of this building. Manitoba Hydro's office tower has reduced the utility's energy consumption by 60% and monthly energy bills by a million dollars. That's not all. Natural ventilation and lighting make it a healthier, more productive place to work. In a so-called three-degree world where CO2 emissions must drop and energy efficiency rise, buildings like this one will be in demand. I'm convinced if we put the same team together and built another tower, we'd be able to build it even that much better. You're going to see some other buildings going up in North America that are going to hopefully surpass this building in the future. We have helped them with the design of their buildings. Learn more about Manitoba Hydro's energy-efficient headquarters at greenplanetmonitor.net. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Join me again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>